Let me uh, pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word that makes us wise. We thank you that because of your faithfulness, we are not consumed. We thank you that you are so gracious. We thank you for the cross, for your son Jesus, who was willing to give his life that we might be redeemed. And we thank you for your bride, the church, this place that nurtures our souls and admonishes us and encourages us in the word that lifts us up when we're weary and the the people here that are brothers and sisters. God, we thank you for this body that you have given us to belong to. And Lord, I, I pray this morning that as we look at this verse in Luke 16, that you would truly be moving in our hearts, that we would be uh, surrendered to your word, that we would be inspired by the Spirit, that we would be um, just brought into understanding of who you are through this process. And Lord, humble us before you, I pray. Bless this time that we have together. We pray too for the cove in the back, Father, that the children back there who are learning these lessons about what a great and glorious God you are, that they would be falling in love with you even this morning as well. In your son's precious name, amen. Uh, One one more thing real quick. There's been sort of a plague of flies in here this morning, and I apologize for that. So if I seem like I'm going crazy up here, that's probably what's going on. Uh, Listen, we're going to be just teaching from, or I'm going to be just teaching from one verse in Luke chapter 16 today. Uh, Luke 16, 18. And there is enough on this subject that I'm going to be teaching on that uh, I, I can actually speak for 30 or 40 minutes on one verse of Scripture. But before I do that, I want to make some kind of foundational remarks for my comments that I hope will prepare you to hear everything that God intends for you to hear this morning, okay? The subject matter that we're going to be discussing is Jesus' view of divorce. And it's a tough uh, topic, not because the verse itself is hard to understand. If you've been with us for a while in Luke, we've come across some verses that really need to take some we need to take some time to unpack them because they're just difficult to understand. That's not the case. This verse, I would say, is very straightforward. It's very simple. It's a tough topic, though, because culturally, even in Christian circles, we tend to be opposed to the simple commands of Scripture at certain points. Uh, This topic is one of those, I think. It's a tough topic because we simply just don't like what Jesus has to say on this matter. So I expect that as I talk about this, and I've really been praying and wrestling through this this week, I I expect that as I talk about this, I'm going to ruffle some feathers. I'm going to say some things that are probably contrary to how you feel about this subject matter or how you understand it. And I I just can't avoid that uh, because I can't avoid what God says in his word. And this is just what happens when you make your way through an entire book of Scripture, verse by verse, or you know, section by section. You're forced to encounter all of what God says, which is a really, really great thing, even if sometimes it's difficult. Okay? So, having said that, I hope to approach this subject in, a, in the way that sort of Jesus deals with messy people and messy real-life situations. Okay? which is with both grace and truth. Grace and truth. I firmly believe that to handle this delicate subject in a way 
that uh, is honest about the fallen state of man and yet respectful of the authority of God, it's going to necessitate dealing with the subject of divorce with grace and truth, okay? So here's what grace looks like. There are some people in this room who uh, are divorced. There are some people in this room who may be going through a divorce right now. Maybe there are some of you who are divorced and remarried, and then there's also some of you who, you know, have been happily married for X number of years. And I would say to approach the, the subject with grace is to understand that God offers to all of us free and abundant forgiveness for the sins of our past. Ponder that. Without exception, without condition, for those who have a repentant heart, God forgives. And when we confess our sins, when we repent of these things, God never doles out a punishment to us, although it may be just that we be punished for sin. He never doles that out on us. Christ died so that the full weight of our punishment for sin could be heaped on him so that we might be set free from those consequences, that we might have grace and forgiveness. So you need to understand there, there may still be consequences for our life decisions, but the punishment for our sins, it would be unjust for God to lay that on us when he has already laid it on his own son in full. And so I want us to pl- apply grace backwards to the past, okay? This is the freedom of forgiveness. It's the assurance that our God no longer counts our sins against us. That is powerful. It's also the acknowledgement of the fact that in a fallen, broken world, not only are sins done to us, but we are guilty of sinning against others. But God, in His grace, again, not only forgives us of our past sins, but get this, He actually works those things out for our good, is what the Word teaches us. So grace means there's no shame, there's no condemnation that you need to feel for what you've done in the past. And thank God for that. But truth requires us to be honest about what God reveals to us and think about how what he has spoken, what he has revealed applies to our future. Okay? If grace looks backwards to offer forgiveness for the past, it's truth then that looks forward for wisdom in the future that we might not fall again into sin, into the patterns that have cost us so heartily in the past. Now, the fact of the matter is God is opposed to divorce. He's opposed to it. That's the clear and simple teaching of Scripture, and I hope I can persuade you of that this morning. And grace for the past is not a rationalization or excuse for what we do today or tomorrow. Forgiveness does not entitle us to then take advantage of God's kindness. I heard a a preacher say recently, uh, just a solid guy, that there are really only two days that matter. There's today and there's the last day. And so the person who has sinned in the past should never wallow in shame or regret because grace covers the past. But by the same token, none of us can look backwards and say that because we've received grace for the things in the past, we're justified to sin in the future. It doesn't work like that. 
Neither can we rest on our good deeds in the past as if we've indebted God to us and we've scored some points that we can now apply to sins in the future. It doesn't work like that either. It is never appropriate for us to say, because of my good works in the past or my grace in the past, I'm justified to sin today or tomorrow. And so the important thing for the Christian actually is not what has happened in the past other than the cross of Christ, which covers our sins. The important thing is how we're going to honor God today and now and how we're going to honor God tomorrow. The life that we will finally present to him at the end of all things, ideally that life being a life of righteousness, a life that honors God for all of his grace and kindness towards us in all of the mess and difficulty of this life. So, all of that to say, I'm not here to shame anyone for the mistakes of the past. It's the Holy Spirit's role and responsibility to convict us of sin. I don't believe that God actually wants us to feel shame. He just wants you to come to him with a heart that is repentant for your sin, whatever sin that may be. But I'm also not here to mislead you about the future either. The truth and the implications that the truth of God's word has for your life today and on the last day. And so we must, with all of our own effort and the full force of the Spirit of God working in and through us, labor to bring our lives into conformity to God's commandments more and more each day. That's what the Christian does after grace. And so we're going to look honestly at what the Bible teaches about divorce. Again, I expect that it'll be a little bit difficult because it's countercultural. Jesus' teaching on divorce flies in the face of our widely accepted societal norms. And that makes it hard for us to hear. So, Luke 16, verse 18. It says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now look, I think the natural inclination when we come to a verse like this, a difficult one, is that we try to kind of squirm out of it, right? Uh, One of the things that I laugh about with people at seminary, I'm in seminary now, is all of the creative ways that you can do gymnastics to kind of work your way around what the Bible is clearly saying. I mean, is Jesus really saying that getting married after divorce is committing adultery? Is Jesus really saying that if we get divorced, we should stay single the rest of our lives? Is he really saying that divorce is a bad thing? And did God really say, Adam and Eve, that you shouldn't eat of that fruit in the garden? That's the temptation that Satan brought before Adam and Eve. Did God really say this? Okay, now I understand that in the messy, messy reality of this broken life that we live, this is an incredibly difficult proposition. And so I want to give grace for the past. But I also want to be very clear about the truth. God's plan for marriage is that it be a lifelong union of one man and one woman serving one another in love honoring God in that relationship. And this truth is just abundantly clear in Scripture. Let me just rattle off a few for you. 
Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Mark 10, 11 through 12, Jesus said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. To the married, I give this charge. This is Paul. Not I, he says, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. And then Genesis 2, 24, at the foundation of all of this, God declares, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What God has brought together, let not man separate. Now, tragically, many churches, many Christians have essentially abandoned the heartfelt commitment to the wedding vows that a married couple make to one another before the Lord. And here's what I want you to understand about that. Here, here's what I think. I think that what that communicates is that the church believes that the power of sin is actually greater than the power of God. What, uh, what divorce statistics among Christians, which are pretty much the same as those outside of the family of God, I think what they communicate is that the church believes that the power of God does not actually supersede the power of sin. That sin is actually a more powerful force than God. Ponder this for a second. Do we as Christians believe that God can really redeem even the worst of circumstances? Do we really believe that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is alive in us, empowering us to live out the commands of God, to obey Him? My personal belief, and I would be so bold as to say that this is uh, a belief that accords with Scripture, is that if a Christian man and a Christian woman are married, then the Spirit of God is powerful enough to help them work through any and every issue, any and every sin, any and every dysfunction that might come into their marriage, if they're willing to humble themselves, to submit themselves before God, to repent, and to listen to the, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And I realize by today's standards, man, that is a radical stance. I mean, I think because this is so much a part of our culture now, a lot of churches don't even want to just talk about it because it's hard. But I, I, it really breaks my heart. I find it really tragic, actually, that two people who profess to be Christians and are involved in a church can go through a divorce while still living their life in the body of Christ, and the church does nothing to get involved to help them, to help them work it out, to counsel them through it, to press them to be repentant. And if we believe in God's power to reconcile, then we can't say that it only works in some places but not other places. He's powerful enough to raise the dead, but he's not powerful enough to save the marriage of two professing Christians. So someone could look at this verse and say, man, Jesus is so harsh. Like, he has no idea what a jerk my husband is. 
Or man, this, this book that you follow, it's so archaic. It has no respect for my privacy rights, my personal decisions telling me what I should and shouldn't do with my marriage. Or even, man, Jesus, he's so black and white. He's got no idea what it's like to suffer in a marriage with an unfaithful spouse. But I would say back to somebody who might claim one of those things. Do you know the power of my God who parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could be set free from slavery by walking on dry ground and miraculously? I mean, do you know the power of my God who hung the stars in the sky and spoke the universe into existence? Do you know the power of my God who puts flesh back on dry bones and gives them life again? This command, this teaching from Jesus, it's actually not a straitjacket that we've been stuffed into. It's a wonderful teaching, I think, about the power of God to reconcile the irreconcilable, to redeem the irredeemable, to take that which is dead and give it life. Jesus is not saying that you in your own power have to fix your marriage and suffer through it, but that God in his power is strong enough to fix even your broken marriage. And the reason why Jesus stands in opposition to divorce is not because he's totalitarian bigoted, chauvinistic, or out of touch. The reason why he stands in opposition to divorce is because where the Spirit of God truly directs the life of the Christian, there is no obstacle that can stand against that power. Do you actually believe that? I mean, you may not be able to fix your marriage, but God is capable of doing that. But do we actually believe that? Do we think that's what Scripture teaches? Or do we basically share the same view as our culture that some situations, they're just, man, they're just beyond hope. It's too far gone. Some marriages are just bad, incompatible people. Some tragic situations are just beyond redeeming. My hope would be that the church would never believe that the power of sin is greater than the power of God to change a heart. I want to look real quick at one other place where Jesus lays down his expectation regarding marriage faithfulness. I'd love for you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, verse 31, in Matthew we find uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5, 6, and 7 in What Jesus does here with the law and the way things uh, were in the Old Testament is really incredible. But he says this, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I want you to understand that Scripture doesn't actually need to give us multiple verses before we are obligated to obey what it says. Just one verse should be sufficient for us to go, this is the Word of God, and I would like to bring my life into conformity. But with Matthew 5, 31 and 32 here, I've now given you six passages of Scripture where God clearly states unquestionably 
that a married man and a married woman should not get divorced. Now, he does make one exception, which is sexual immorality. But you know what I I find is that um, when we begin to say that God makes one exception, we become overly obsessed with the exception rather than championing the rule. What I mean is that Jesus does not go so far as to say, man, in every case, at every point in time where there is sexual infidelity, that marriage needs to end by divorce. He allows an exception, but the exception actually reinforces the rule. Do you see that? And I think Jesus is, he, he's so gracious, he's so kind. I mean, he, I think he's acknowledging the fact that the human condition is so broken and so messed up by sin and that God actually understands that this is a difficult issue. But we tend to go, see, uh, even God admits sometimes there's a case for divorce. That is true. But I think that uh, the consequence of going immediately there is that we come to focus more on the power of sin to break things than the power of God to heal things. We join the culture. The culture is way down here in its view of marriage. And, and we're sort of here, and, and when we go to the exception, we sort of go down. Whereas what Jesus does is say, God's view of marriage is, is here. And the church should be striving to meet there. And so understand, by putting this exception clause in here, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, Jesus actually elevates God's expectations for marriage, and he closes the door to just about every other typical excuse that you might hear a divorce attorney talk about. So let's not get caught up in the exception clause. Let's not lower our standards of godliness in marriage. Let's consider the consequences of what Jesus says, and let's lift high the value of marriage, God's plan for marriage. Let me put it for you very simply, okay? Let me summarize all of Scripture's teaching on divorce. You ready? Divorce is not compatible with the Christian worldview. Divorce is not compatible with the Christian worldview. And that's one of the things I I want you to hear today. Divorce is simply not compatible with the Christian worldview. (laughs) And that is so hard. But I believe that God is powerful enough to work out the intricacies of that statement. And again, I want to be sensitive to the difficulty that creates in this horribly fallen world. I am not ignorant of how hard this is. I had a story that's been haunting me all week as I've been studying this. Many years ago when Maricopa Springs was um, just a tiny church with a fraction of the people here, there was uh, a woman who was coming to our church, sweet, gentle, God-loving lady. And at one point she asked to speak with Leanne and I and we invited her over and we sat down and she told me uh, what has to be one of the most horrendous pastoral counseling stories I have yet to hear. Before she found the grace of Christianity in Christ, She was a Jehovah's Witness, married to a man who professed to be a Jehovah's Witness, and uh, her husband was physically and sexually abusive. Uh, He would essentially rape her, beat her. One night she told us that when she was sleeping, he came home, and he didn't drink, so he couldn't blame it on anything like that, not that that's an excuse. 
But he came home and she was sleeping and he woke her up by just beating the crud out of her. And she was pregnant at the time and one of the things he did was just repeatedly punch her in the stomach. And he caused her to have a miscarriage. The abuse that he laid out on her caused her to have a miscarriage. And this story had happened to her decades before But even decades had not resolved the woundedness. And she sat there and told us this story and wept in sorrow and wept in shame that she was telling us this. And she went to the elders of her Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall and she told them that her husband was physically and sexually abusive. And they said to her, well, according to our scriptures, you have to stay married to him. And he probably wouldn't beat you if you were a better wife and a better mother. Horrible, horrible thing to suggest. And she promptly left that religion. She divorced her husband. And later she met Jesus Christ with grace, forgiveness, and redemption of the cross. And she was saved and she came to know what it means to be loved by a good husband, Christ. And so now if you're sitting in this room here this morning, now you've heard this story, what would you have said to that woman? What do you think Jesus would have said to that woman? I mean, this man's actions towards her were pure evil. And you know what? After she found Jesus, actually, she never remarried. She raised her children herself, and she went through that difficult struggle. I know at least in part, I mean, I think part of it was she was just so broken, she couldn't trust another man. But I think Additionally, in talking with her, part of it was she respected these words of Jesus and she desired to honor him with her life even after suffering such horrible abuse. And what I want you to know in regards to this topic is that our God is kind. He really is. He's gracious. He's gentle with the hurting. Scripture says, a bruised reed he will not break. He brings healing and he offers limitless, unconditional forgiveness. I think to a degree he even acknowledges that sin has filled our world with ethically challenging gray lines that tend to cause us to move either towards legalism on one side or licentiousness on the other side rather than towards obedience. But the truth is, even with all of that difficulty, all of that complexity, God's desire for marriage is that it be permanent, that it be enduring, that it be a blessing, that it be a beacon of hope in a world that says that there is no power of God at work in this world. God's desire is for those that become one flesh in marriage to stay one flesh until death parts them. So I would say the application of Luke 16, 18 is very simple. There's two applications. The first one is what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't get divorced. It's that simple. But we've got a plethora of people in here all over this spectrum, and so let me get more specific. If you're married, I encourage you to work on your marriage so that it doesn't end like this. Get help from the church if you need it. Man, In cases where I've had to walk through people with their broken marriages, usually they come to me and and it's already late. I mean, the divorce papers are in the car. Don't wait. Get help. Talk honestly with your spouse about your issues. 
bring trusted friends in to help, reach out to the elders of Maricopa Springs, labor to stay married because that is God's desire for you. I would say if you're divorced, it's best to stay single, to actually seek to continue to reconcile with your spouse, your ex-spouse. I think that's God's primary desire. In some cases where there is infidelity, I think Scripture makes it clear that you are free to pursue a different relationship. Or if your spouse is an unbeliever and outright, outright rejects you, And you know what? The truth is, if you seek to reconcile with your ex, it's probably true that your spouse is not worthy of you living a life that honors the marriage vows, but God is worthy of that. Now, if you're divorced and remarried, that's the real tricky one. The church is very divided on this. I'm going to say that I actually believe that God's intention is for you to honor your current marriage vows in a way that brings him glory and praise. I believe that he supports those vows, and I want to make a case for that. In the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, the Israelites are commanded to go across the Jordan River and take the promised land. The words are very uh, explicit. God says you're to devote every nation in the promised land to destruction as an offering unto the Lord. And while Israel is working to accomplish this, they've initiated their movement into the land of of the the promised land, Canaan, and uh, one of the nations in that land hears about their success in destroying their neighbors. And so they plan a trick. They dress up a caravan in old clothes, old shoes, and they, uh, they beat the wineskins, and they make the bread stale, and they send this delegation to Israel to lie to them and say, we've come from a far-off land, and we've heard about how strong you are. Make a covenant with us that you won't destroy us. The Gibeonites is the name of this nation. And Israel fails to really investigate the truth. They mess up, and they make a covenant with the Gibeonites in direct violation of God's command. But you know what? God actually holds Israel to that covenant. Later in the book of 2 Samuel, we see that Saul is accused by God of having blood on his hands, blood guilt, because he unjustly killed the people of Gibeon in contrast to the covenant that Israel had made with them. And God is angry with Saul for breaking a covenant that God never sanctioned in the first place. And I bring this story into the discussion because I think it shows the grace and kindness of God, his patience with us, his commitment to our vows. Israel actually made a vow with the Gibeonites that they never should have made. But God honors the vow. So if you're divorced and you're remarried, honor God with your current wedding vows. Receive grace for the past and labor hard to love your spouse. The second application fits well in that, and I would say it's what you should do, right? If I'm going to say what you shouldn't do is get divorced, let's talk about what you should do, because you should do something well before that moment is on the horizon, and that's this. Love your spouse selflessly. 
Again, again, the truth is, long before a couple falls into the sin of divorce, they've fallen into the sin of not loving one another and honoring one another the way the Bible teaches that we should. And so there's a positive aspect to this. The positive application is love your spouse with a selfless, Christ-like love. For those of you who are married, I want to give you this illustration. God has actually given you stewardship over the heart of your spouse. There's a day that's coming not too distant from this day where God's going to ask you to give that heart back to him because it belongs to him. He's entrusted it to you for a time, but it's not actually yours. You're only a temporary caretaker. And what kind of condition do you want to return that heart to God in? What kind of condition do you want it to be in when you hand it back to him? Are you going to give him a a lonely heart that's just emaciated with emotional starvation? Are you going to hand back to God the heart of your spouse that's bruised and battered weak from your verbal debasement? Will you hand him the heart of your spouse so filled with fear, so filled with shame because of your treatment, so unloved that when God looks at that heart, he'll hardly even recognize it? Man, What if the church didn't have to talk about divorce, not because we were trying to avoid a difficult subject that is now culturally accepted, but because we were so radically Christ-like that every Christian marriage was a burning torch, a beacon of love that gives glory to God in the way that Christians love one another. Christians shouldn't get divorced, but more importantly, Christians should love their spouse. I need to say one more thing before I uh, really ground all of this in the gospel for us, and I understand I'm long but difficult subject. I hope you'll give me grace because there's a lot to say. I want to just speak to the husbands in the room. Call me old-fashioned, even though I'm I'm a youngster, I guess. But I think that the primary responsibility for the health of your marriage and your family falls to you. If you go back at some point, read Genesis 3. There's a fascinating little nuance in that story where uh, Eve takes the fruit first. She is the one who is tempted. I think Adam is standing right there next to her, kind of like a dope. But she takes the fruit. She buys the lie. She eats of it first and then gives it to her husband But you know what? God comes looking for Adam, asking him, Adam, where are you? What have you done? And so God holds Adam accountable for the trajectory of the family. And so husbands, put away your video games and love your wife. Set down the phone and invest in your family. Forgo your career ambitions if you need to, to build your marriage. Turn off the pornography and be satisfied with the flesh of your wife in your marriage bed that God has given you. Flee from your childish selfishness and strive to love your wife like Christ Jesus loves the church. I understand it takes two to tango, right? It's not entirely dependent on you. Marriage is a cooperative effort. It's a team sport that both members have to be willing to play. But men, men, step up your game and love your wife. Treasure her. Lead her to Jesus. One final incredibly important thought, okay? 
I need to ground all of this in the gospel for you so it's not just empty commands. Earlier in, in my message, I said someone might complain against the teaching of Jesus in Luke 16, 18 by saying something like this, man, Jesus is so black and white, he has no idea what it's like to suffer in a marriage with an unfaithful spouse. Maybe we could expand that to say God has no idea what it's like to live with an intolerable spouse, a selfish spouse, a wayward spouse, a lazy spouse, an adulterous spouse. God just does not understand how hard my marriage is. But you know the real reason why God despises divorce? It's because God himself is the ultimate abused lover who never fails to pursue his bride no matter how wayward she might be. The language of Scripture all the way back to Abraham is the language of covenant. It's, it's marriage language. God wed himself to his people. They became his bride. And all through Scripture, we see that the people that God chooses to call by his name are continually wayward. They abuse him. They mistreat him. They make a mockery of his name among the nations. They leave him for lovers that are far less wild. They commit adultery. They turn their backs on him. They forsake him and profane their marriage vows. They do anything and everything that a chronically abusive spouse would do. But God never divorces his people. Though they are intolerably unfaithful to their covenant vows, God never leaves them. He never forsakes them. And see, the truth is, you are actually that intolerable spouse. So God does know what this is like because your wayward treatment of him is always before him. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that God's ultimate purpose for marriage is to point us to the love that God displayed in Christ Jesus loving the people of God, the church. Christ has won his bride through his sacrifice. He's won the church. And he will be forever faithful to his bride no matter how faithful or faithless we may be. He even gave his own life so that his bride might be redeemed even though his bride was unworthy. And the truth is, guys, we have given God every excuse to exit the marriage relationship with no fault on his part, and he doesn't. He never abandons his bride. In every situation, at every moment, God continues to love her and to be faithful to her. He continues to love you and be faithful to you with patience, with kindness, So the real reason that God has such a strong dislike for divorce is not because it's this arbitrary thing. It's because marriage is a symbol of God's faithfulness to his people. And therefore, because God is faithful, we too must respond with faithfulness. Our faithfulness and our endurance in our marriages is not ultimately an obligation to our spouse. We don't remain faithful to our husband or our wife, to those covenant vows, only because our spouse upholds their end of the agreement. Our faithfulness, our endurance in our marriage is our response to God's faithfulness in his 
marriage, his covenant to us. We remain faithful to our covenant vows because God and God alone has upheld his promises. And because of his faithfulness, we remain the treasured bride of Christ. Because I am faithful, you, O Israel, are not destroyed. So let us honor God in response to how wonderfully he has honored us. Let me pray. God, you know what each person in this room needs right now. You, you know that there are probably some who need to be convicted for sin. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do that and bring them to repentance, that they might be restored and not lost. But Lord, you also know that there are probably stories in this room somewhat like the story that I shared, stories of brokenness and unfaithfulness and abuse and hardship. And Lord, you know what those people need as well, and I pray that you would minister to them. God, ultimately, I ask that you would make us a people who are faithful to you, that we would be faithful in our marriages because of your faithfulness to us, that we would see that ultimately every promise we make is not a promise that can be broken with a person because it's a promise that we make before you, Lord. And so I pray that our church would lift high the covenant of marriage because you have lifted it high in the sacrifice of your Son on the cross. And Lord, would you help us to believe that sin is not more powerful than your Spirit at work in us? And would you help us to overcome any and every obstacle according to the power of your Spirit at work within us, I pray. Amen.